Welcome to One Hour in the Past, a podcast series presented by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and hosted by me, Adrian Petrie, Visitor Services Coordinator, and Kathleen Powell, Curator and Supervisor of Historical Services. Our community is filled with diverse stories and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honour the centuries of Indigenous people who walked on Turtle Island before us. As museum professionals, our jobs are many-fold. Managers, curators, interpreters, researchers, and much, much more. We often find ourselves pining for some more interesting and perhaps wild history in our daily work especially in these uncharted days of Zoom meetings and working from home. Our podcast begins with the idea that a simple search for information can lead you in strange and wonderful directions, as in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Historical research has a tendency to lead you down a winding rabbit hole that takes you off your original path towards some new and amazing historical places. Each of us has just one hour to research a topic, 60 minutes, that's it. We research separately and then come back together to discuss where one hour in the past has taken us. If you're joining us for the first time on One Hour in the Past, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and head back in the archives to catch other episodes of Historical Adventures. We're excited to bring you a new season of One Hour in the Past with this episode. Season one, if you were following along, we explored a wide range of topics from the arts and crafts movement to Thanksgiving. Uh, in season two, we welcomed guests to help join us on our trip down the rabbit hole as we researched topics like photography, sidewalks, and telephones. We're taking this third season of the podcast down a bit of a different path. We'll be diving a bit deeper into Canadian history by researching prime ministers, maps and mapping, the Family Compact, the Fur Trade, the FLQ Crisis, and on today's episode, the History of Printing. We are really looking forward to researching these topics, but we still want to hear from you about what topics you'd like us to spend our one hour in the past researching. Send us your ideas via our social media platforms on www.facebook.com forward slash St. Catherine's Museum and at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. The world has changed a lot in the last little while, so I just want to note that Kathleen and I are recording today's podcast in a similar manner to how many other podcasts are being recorded these days via Zoom. Enjoy the episode. start, it's time for the traditional dictionary definition of our topic for today, which is printing. Printing is the verb of print. It is the production of books, newspapers, magazines, etc., especially in large quantities by a mechanical process involving the transfer of text, images, or designs to paper. Additionally, a second definition is the writing of text clearly without joining letters in comparison to cursive writing. The word print is derived from the Latin premere, which means to press, and in Old French became print, which means pressed, 
and from there to Old English with our word today, print. Thanks for making me say all of those things. <laughs> you are welcome. <laughs> I'm very impressed with your Latin. It's great. <clears throat> I actually took Latin in high school. <laughs> oh, no oh, that's great. Perfect. Okay, yeah, you're doing the definitions from now on. That's great. Okay, um, do you want to go first? I can, if you'd or, like. Who, did I go first last time or did you go first last time? I went first last time, actually. Okay, how about I, how about I go first? Okay, sure. Okay. okay, okay. So interestingly enough, we selected this topic about a month or so ago. And at that time, I was just beginning to listen to a wonderful podcast um, by British actor Stephen Fry called Great Leap Years. Um, that was the first season. The second season is called Seven Deadly Sins. So if anybody's looking for it, and I highly recommend it, it's now called Seven Deadly Sins. But the first season is Great, great Leap Years. The second episode of the podcast was all about Gutenberg's printing press. And it was cool. incredibly interesting history. Yeah, it was super cool of that particular invention and the world and the context surrounding it. For example, the coolest thing for me was never, I never thought of it, but the investment dollars that Gutenberg needed to make this super important invention happen was considerable. Yet, can anybody name Guten's, Gutenberg's investors off the top of their head? Um, so like he couldn't have done what he did without all the money. Right. I really encourage folks to listen to that episode after they listen to this one. It is, it's really good. Uh, so that, that was really cool. So we had picked that this topic way before I listened to that. So and I think I cheated a little bit because I've spent way more time on printing than just one hour, because I think that podcast is an hour. So well, I, I have to admit. I kind of cheated. Well, I didn't cheat, but I already knew actually quite a bit about um, the press in Canada in the 19th and early 20th century. Right. So right. Uh, some of the stuff that I will talk about later on in my kind of research, I already knew this because I had to actually write an essay about it. So right. right. Interesting. I, I kind of got a little bit of background knowledge. I tried not to use that in the too much in this podcast. Yeah. But it will come into play. It is hard to put your like previous knowledge away. It's a good way to kick, kick off season three by cheating. So that's where I started. <laughs> and this is where I ended up. I ended up with the sound of the dot matrix printer. Oh my God. You which I will play later. I'm going to play that. I'm going to play that sound later. That's Enjoy awesome. that. Yeah. So I started um, with just a general Google search of printing and which took me to um, Gutenberg obviously and so that kind of I was kind of in that mindset at least from the st at the start and through a good chunk of it um, and then I ended with um, the partisanship of the press in the 20th early 20th century cool. um, so I did end up in my kind of headspace of what I'm super interested in, in how the press worked around the time of the First World War, before, just before the First World War. And, uh, and, but that is like actually history of Canada in general. So I will go into that a little throughout, but that's where I kind of ended up. I actually didn't have enough time. I did not, no. an hour was not enough for this topic. Not enough. Uh, and I'm super interested in the topic. I used to work at the Mackenzie Printery and newspaper museum in Queenston. And I loved that history of the printing press and the press in Canada and how printing worked and all of those fun things. Uh, so it was 
just this was a topic I could have done, you know, days of research. Yeah, days, days, absolutely. I went real far back into ancient history. That's right. I went <laughs> went before Gutenberg's revolutionary mass production of movable type. Yeah. Um, so the because I think the idea of printing or the idea of pressing ink to paper or making an impression on some sort of material has been around much longer. And oh. it's often forgotten about people kind of th like, I for sure think about like printing started with Gutenberg, yeah. <laughs> like language and writing started with Gutenberg. That's obviously not, not the way it is, but that's kind of when you're thinking quickly about it, that's what happens. So an example of a way earlier piece of printing machinery, I guess you could say is the cylinder seal. The cylinder seal is a small round cylinder, typically about one inch, two to three centimeters in length. It's engraved with written characters or figurative scenes or both. It was used in ancient times to roll an impression onto a two-dimensional surface, which is generally wet clay. Cylinder seals were invented around uh, 3500 BCE in southern Mesopotamia and slightly later as well in southwestern Iran during the Proto-Elamite period. <laughs> I'm probably mispronouncing that. And they, <laughs> and they followed the development of the stamp seals in the Halaf culture. They were used as an administrative tool or form of signature as well as jewelry and as magical amulets. Later, versions would employ notations with Mesopotamian cuneiform. So it's really the, the precursor to that, like the written language that came out of Mesopotamia. Yeah, I'll post a picture in the footnotes, but it's, um, it's like, a, imagine a, like an Edison wax cylinder, but instead it's engraved with whatever image you want, images you want. So it's, it's the engraving part. <laughs> and then you like press it into the press it and roll it um okay. into the into the clay so like a rolling pin almost. yeah like a rolling pin yeah and then when you yeah when you like go across and roll then the image gets eventually like laid out on the on the on the clay which is super cool so I was instantly captured by this form and thought that when I saw the picture of the cylinder seal it was about um I thought about how the development of language and communication go hand in hand with the mode that it's communicated on or through. And I think about, and then I thought about how language today has changed a lot by our use of Twitter. Yeah. And I've noticed that folks have begun to drop the articles, the part of speech article at the beginning of their sentences because of the popular use of Twitter of like cutting down characters. And also because of some, uh, you know, one particular person has really changed the the tone of Twitter, I think, the president of the United States. Um, so oftentimes he'll say something like sad when it should be, it's very sad or it's sad. Nice. He's dropped the articles. And so people haven't, people have started dropping articles on Twitter, but they also drop articles in regular everyday person to person speech. It's so very true. That, yeah, language has changed so much. So much. Uh, to just based on social media in general and just the way people write now used to be that when you wrote something there was a certain form to writing yes. that you, it was more formal than speaking but now a lot of people just write like they speak exactly yeah um which isn't necessarily bad it's just different 
No, it's, you're right. It's not bad. It's different. But the, I find the dropping of articles to be annoying. <laughs> so, I think like I get used to people saying hashtag in like words, spoken right. words. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, and I'm guilty of it too. Um, but it, sometimes it, it just jars on like my listening skills if somebody speaks like that speaks like they're on Twitter in person. Yeah. Anyway, so you can, so again, I'll put a picture of the cylinder uh, seal in the footnotes to this episode. Um, that was really interesting. It, it did make me think of the wax cylinders that were used by Edison for the phonograph as well that we were just talking about in our last episode of One Hour in the Past. It's neat that he transferred the idea of engraving a cylinder as the delivery mechanism for music, just as the cylinder seal is the delivery mechanism for language. It's kind of cool too, because like you do need to, like, can you, you can't read a wax cylinder. You have to put it on and play it to know what's on it. And like, can you, you can sort of read the cylinder seal, but it's, it's much easier if it's used. So they have all these pictures of these cylinder seals in museums, but the cool, it's, it's neat when they're beside the actual, like the cylinder seals beside the clay that it was rolled out into that basically. Like a, uh, something that is across all printed material, like press, press printed uh, history anyway, because it's backwards and upside down essentially when you yes. put it on there. So you yeah. can't really, it, you could read it, if you wrap your brain around that. Yes. But even if you look at like papers, newspapers from the 1980s, we have that paper that's set in the collection. Yeah. We have that page from the St. Catherine Standard that was the last page letterpress set. Yeah. And you can read it, but it's easier to read it if you read the printed page because yes. right now the letters are backwards and the opposite way around. That's the best thing. Like it's an artifact that has a purpose that you 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 can show both of those things together to show yeah. how it works. Which is yeah, great. almost like a camera and a photograph, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. It's also neat because the cylinder seal has that capability of making copies. So you like, if, as long as you have pieces of clay lying around, you can make as many, you can make as many copies as you need. So a stamp, it's kind of like a stamp or a, a woodblock type press, you know, was another option that I could have gone in my research. So you just, yeah, you just need the multiple pieces of clay and you can have as many copies as you want. And it makes me think that like, wouldn't a carved cylinder, maybe even out of wood or, or one of these stone ones, instead of a engraved cylinder, a carved cylinder. So like you're having the letters be like sticking out rather than going in, if that makes sense. Yeah. Wouldn't that have solved the problem for all those poor monks who were handwriting the Bible over and over and over again for their entire <laughs> lives? What if they just carved the pages onto a cylinder and then they could have just rolled the pages? What were they thinking? Like, come on. Imagine all the amount of work to carve that cylinder. Yeah, yeah. But then... One page, right? Yeah. But then, like, if you spend your whole life writing one Bible, whereas you can have, like a bunch of carvers carving each page and then over a lifetime, right? And then after all of that, you can just roll them. But, yeah. Well, I mean, in the end, based on what Gutenberg ended up doing, it was kind of like thinking in that mindset yeah. a little bit, I think. Exactly, yeah. But I did do a lot of research on that part in particular, so I'm interested when we get there. Well, I'll let Stephen Fry talk about it because, man, it's super cool. It's, it's really cool. I definitely recommend that podcast. So because seal, cylinder seals are a form of impression seal, the next place I discovered 
myself in was wax seals. This is pretty far from printing, but it's part of the culture of paper and printing and that kind of thing. So it, it applies. It's a tangent, but it applies. So wax or clay seals were very common in the medieval period, again, for authenticating documents like decrees, legislation, tax documents, wills, and property documents. Otherwise, anyone can just... Yeah, like forge. It, yeah, any copy you want of anything. And people did anyway. Yes, people did anyway. Exactly. <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> like... If people trust the wax seal. It could be yeah. anyone's wax seal on there. How do you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like certain movies, certain like medieval movies, like plot points that are based on that, right? Like the Pope will send a letter and it's yeah. like, are we sure this is from the Pope? <laughs> um, <laughs> they were, uh, anyway, the wax seals were were popular because they often served as, served as or accompanied uh, a, a signature and they could be very fancy, like very large as well. They are somewhat traditional now, but they still play an important role as an official stamp on documents like legislation, or if you think about the, the seal of the president in the States, it's kind of used as a logo now. It's uh, still used on, as a seal on important stuff, but it's, it's basically used as a logo. Um, in Canada, we have a great seal of Canada as do many other countries, they have their own great seal. And it's an enormous metal stamp. And I'll put a picture of it in the footnotes, it's huge. So I went and now and researched the Great Seal of Canada. <laughs> so the Great Seal of Canada is one of the oldest and most venerated instruments of our government. Since the earliest days of our nation, Canada's most important documents have been made official through its imprint. The Great Seal signifies the power and authority of the crown flowing from the sovereign to our parliamentary government. The Great Seal has both ceremonial and administrative purposes, of course. Each time a new governor general is installed in Canada, he or she is solemnly charged with the custody of the seal as representative of the crown. It is used on all state documents, such as royal proclamations and commissions issued for the appointment of lieutenant, lieutenant governors, cabinet ministers, senators, and judges. The presence of the seal melds together the notions of authenticity, authority, and the will of the crown, while at the oh. same time, <laughs> yeah, while at the same time lending a, a certain prestige to the document. So it's, it's like. Yeah. I have a military commission. Yeah. Hanging in my office at work. It's my my uh, commission when I became a member, uh, an officer in the military. And it has a seal on it that was sealed by the governor general. Is it, is that Canada's seal? Um, maybe. What does it, wow. what does the seal look like? I don't know. I'll have to go and look at it next time. Because <laughs> I have, I, yeah. Oh, right. It's in your office at the museum, right? Um, yeah, take a look at it because it could be. I have a description of the seal in a second, but um, it's not very big. It's only like you know. But it could be like a mini version of it. Yeah, but it, the the document's signed by the the governor general. Hmm. I wonder. That's interesting because the governor general is the with the crown, right? It's my kind of contract with the crown to be a member of the military. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. as the commander in chief, the governor general signs it um well yeah you have to take a look at see if it's yeah. the if it maybe it's like the because the army might have its own or the military might have its own seal maybe for that 
purpose for commission, but it, you know what? It's probably the Great Seal. It's just a mini version of the Great Seal, I'm sure. That's pretty um, cool. Because it does say commissions, and that's a commission, right? So. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, because yeah. some people, if you're lucky, and the sovereign happens to be in the country when you're getting your commission, your commission could be signed by the queen. Or, oh my gosh. Or whoever the sovereign is. But mine was signed by the governor general at the time. Which one was that? Uh, I think it was Mikhail John. Oh, okay. That's still cool. <laughs> <laughs> still commander in chief, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Actually, I really am very proud of it. It's very cool. So I'll get to the description of our current Great Seal of Canada in a second, but I, I was thinking about um, how this, how the Great Seal is so important because what if the seal ever fell into the hands of an enemy, like mm -hmm. during a war, could they, would that like, since that is the like physical, it's really the only physical that I can think of, physical instrument of government for right. running government or between the Crown and Parliament. It's the only physical actual piece that you can run away with right i did i think like you know if you think about it in movies or something like that when they say they're going to take the capital i think it's like you would just generally assume government and be like where's the seal like you know but if you're a mil if you're it's a military operation they're probably not thinking about the seal because they'll just be like we have a we don't need a seal because we have the military but right. if you want to be um you know authentic and consistent yeah. with the previous government then yeah, getting the seal, I guess, would be kind of as close to you can as actually getting the crown, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, so I looked up, like, has anyone ever stolen a seal? So it actually did happen in 1688. 1688, while attempting to flee to France, James II destroyed his great seal, apparently oh. by throwing it in the river and uh, in the hope that the machinery of government, again, would cease to function. So if you don't have that seal, you can't pass any laws. So good luck. Throw it in the river and off I go to France. Well, people are putting a lot of uh, um, just inherent faith in the authenticity of these seals then. Like, yeah, that's right. Can you create a new one? Yeah, well, and that's that's basically what happened is that James' successors, William and Mary, um, used basically the same seal matrix to create their new new great seal so that it looked very similar to James. They had their own names on it, but it looked very similar to James's. So it would basically imply continuity of government. Like, haha, you, you, throw, you threw yours in the river, but guess what? We still have the matrix, so we can make a new one and it's basically the same. Bye. <laughs> so, but I thought that was really interesting that like on, on his way to exile, the thing that you think about to grab is like, oh, you know what? I better get my seal and throw it in the river. I guess they're obviously important. I don't know if you went in this direction, but you see in 19th century, 18th century, even 17th century portraiture, you see people with their seal, their own personal seal, either on a Absolutely. ring or hanging from their, their waistcoat or something like that. That's right. Obviously it's important if you're carrying it with you all the time. Yes. This is like your official signature, uh, even though the, most of those people could sign their name. This is the thing that they have they use to to show that it was actually them and not some other person pretending to be them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the authenticity part is the important piece of that seal. So it, it, yeah, it's kind of yeah. neat. Our country's great seal is uniquely Canadian. It has been in existence since Confederation, yet it has changed. So this makes me think, and it changes as currency changes with each successive reign. So like they'll make a new, so they, they, there's the idea of the great seal 
as like an idea and the power that it holds. And then there's the actual thing, the physical material seal. So like we've had a seal, like the official great seal of Canada has been a thing since Confederation, but the seal changes with every new monarch basically. So the present great seal was made by the Canadian Royal Canadian Mint and bears the effigy of Her Majesty. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, of course, in her robes, holding the orb and scepter and sitting on the coronation chair in Westminster Abbey. The bilingual inscription reads, Reine du Canada, Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada. Previous great seals were inscribed in Latin. So that's interesting. You would be able to read it, but I wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This current great seal is made of steel and it weighs... Uh, 3.7 kilograms, which is just over eight pounds. Wow. It's like a baby. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, whoo, that's a lot. You're eight pounds is a country. lot. Well, those seals are heavy. The ones we have in our collection are pretty heavy. Yeah, they're big. Like, no they mistake. Put like, a lot of weight behind them to be yeah, able that's to really right. make an impression. Exactly, yeah. And uh, this seal is 12 centimeters in diameter. The governor general is the official keeper of the great seal. So it makes sense that the great seal would be on your commission. Um, but it must be a smaller version. But it's a, like a mini. Yeah. yeah. Cause otherwise your commission, cause your commission's like yay big, right? So your commission yeah. would be like yay big yeah. or it would have to like hang off. Yeah. So the governor general takes an oath to this effect at the installation ceremony. They're the keeper of the seal. During the swearing in ceremony of a new ministry, the Minister of Industry, who is at the same time the Registrar General of Canada, uh, becomes the keeper of the seal on a day-to-day basis. So if you ever watch the swearing-in ceremonies of a new ministry after an election, um, you'll see that the Minister of Industry gets handed the seal. <laughs> well, boom! <laughs> and whoa! Don't drop it. Like you have to wear steel-toe boots when you have the steel, when you have the, uh, the seal. <laughs> because it's health and safety issue. <laughs> like eight pounds, that's a lot. Um, anyway, so, and it's, it's for me, it's kind of interesting too, because like we don't have crown jewels in Canada, right? We don't have any like material of state. Um, the Supreme Court justices get to wear robes, but that's about it. Like, and that's about it. There's a throne. Um, Black Rod has a couple of things, a chain, there's the the mace, um, but like in terms of like actual things of the crown, there isn't much. So the great seal is actually kind of neat and and really important. So anyway, so then I got off of that, and so when I was thinking about why we chose this topic, I thought I remembered when I when I suggested this topic is because I was dealing with one of the particularly fussy printers at the museum. And while I was waiting for it to reboot, which is often fine, it's fine, part of life. I'm not complaining. In fact, oh, how I wish for a day where I had to reboot the printer, you know? Anyway, <laughs> I was thinking of how the heck this thing actually worked, or in that case, it did, wasn't working. So I started to think about the printer of my childhood as well. Before the laser, which, was, which also never worked, especially our laser printer never, ever Seems like it never worked anyway, but especially the night before an assignment was due or more accurately five minutes before I was running out the door to catch the bus in the morning, the printer would always not connect to the computer for some reason. Anyway. that seriously. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so the printer that I'm talking about before our laser printer is of course the dot matrix printer. 
that my dad had uh, with the, he had, um, you know, the Radio Shack TRS-80, that, that like block of a laptop, laptop. It was basically a flat box with keys on it. Almost <laughs> like um, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, I'll put a picture of, of one of these in the footnotes to the episode, but it's basically looks like an enormous label maker with a similar screen. Do you know what kind of type, I can't find the type of screen. It's like a crystal, like calculator screen. Yeah. Is that what, like, what are those called, those calculator screens? I have no idea, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It's like gray, right? Like, yeah. And then it there's, looks it, almost like an Etch-a-Sketch screen. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if anybody knows what that's called, put it in the comments because I ran out of time and I couldn't find, what's, what's, what, what is that technology called? It's like, I think it's a crystal or something, but I don't know what it is. Anyway, so I used to type out so much gibberish and like random stuff all the time, all, all the time. Like a Saturday morning was spent typing random stuff <laughs> on that TRS-80 and then I'd print it and then I'd spend the, like, <laughs> it, it'd be pages, honestly, Kathy, it'd be pages. And sometimes it'd be just pages of like dashes, like, cause you could enter for a long time, right? Uh, like you could hit the, the enter button for forever. Then I'd spend the rest of the day or at least like the afternoon tearing off the perforated per paper, sides <laughs> of the paper, which was just like so satisfying when you got like a good, good, a good, like I, like it looked like this, like I just, I like there's muscle memory there from doing it. And it was so satisfying when you like were able to do it in one go and like have no leftover little snags. And then if you had a snag, you'd have to go, you like have to start over in your record of perfect tears of, of perforation paper. So unsurprisingly, my dad did not like us playing with it, but too bad. Um, <laughs> it was so much fun pretending to be like a businessman or, or something important typing up documents. And so uh, when I was thinking about that, the sound of the dot matrix printer is is ingrained in my head, just kind of like dial-up, the dial-up sound uh, is yeah. ingrained in my head. That sound of the dot matrix printer is ingrained in my head. And it's one of those sounds that like, if you hear it, you know exactly what it is. Nice. <laughs> All right, and that's as far as I got. Your turn. Awesome. Um, so I, I started with printing presses in general and how, uh, how you would define a printing press because what made it a printing press versus like what you were talking about, a cylinder, to be able to print something. And a printing press is something that applies pressure to an inked surface that has a medium that you're printing to. So it could be paper or it could be cloth, whatever that is. So I thought that was kind of interesting, but, um, and then of course I went to Gutenberg cause I figured, you know what, I should go to Gutenberg as a start. And I did. Uh, and for those people who don't know, Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press and other things in about 1440. And the Gutenberg Bible came out in, I think it's 1446. It took a little while, but 1440 something. Sorry, I should have written that down. Anyway, the, <laughs> the thing that the tangent, it wasn't really a tangent, but the thing that I got interested in was not so much the printing press itself as the con confluence of printing technology 
to make that be something that went forward at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as per like all of, a lot of these podcasts, the thing that I find so interesting is invention is the uh, ability of a person to think up all these things to be able to do something practical. Like to, and, uh, like to arrive at that pivot point. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And and the Stephen Fry podcast, they were talking a lot about the money behind it. Right. And so, I didn't even go to the money part. Yeah. I only was looking at the technology that made Johann Gutenberg's invention. He didn't even invent the press. Made his Bible that he did that he printed a thing at the time that changed the world. Because it's clearly this is one of those uh, times and places that people would say this is a seminal thing in history was this uh invention that happened in germany in the 1440s there were presses that already existed so in you will i'm sure be way more better informed about these things than i am but uh presses for pressing grapes for making wine and for pressing fruit for making cider fruit presses worked already like a, Johann Gutenberg's printing press was a press that was very similarly designed it was a screw press that you turned this thing and when you turned it it actually put pressure on whatever is below it essentially Ooh. the other thing was Gutenberg many people might or might not know this was a jeweler and so his skill was also that he invented movable type the way that printing presses work is that you would lay out a page these original presses you'd lay out a single page with type that you can put in and out in different ways to be able to create the page and then you could print like you know hundreds of copies of this page all at one time on this press so it was the confluence of this technology that Gutenberg used to create movable type which was actually the mold not the type itself it was the mold that was that he kind of built using his skills as a jeweler <laughs> to, to build these little molds for each letter and then you fill those molds with lead and you create the type and you could create like you need how many a's do you need in a page of a book you so you mold out like a hundred a's or you know 20 t's or whatever you need and so that technology and the press together was important so he created that but then also paper, at this exact time, paper became cheaper and uh, mechanization of paper had already had started happening at this particular point in time. So paper making as a process, a mechanical process had been around since the 13th century, but just at the time that Gutenberg was creating the movable type and coming up with this more refined version of a printing press to be able to use with his movable type. Manufactured paper making was just reaching Germany in the 14th century. So it was just in time for Gutenberg to be able to take advantage of it. And just to go back a little bit to the press part of it, the thing that Gutenberg did do was he refined the version of the press so that it had a movable bed so that you could slide out the, the page that you had put together with their, your type and then change it up and then slide it back in and then it also the way that the press was designed is that it had a little bit of elasticity to the press part because it had to be able to press the page down 
evenly. Uh, it was even, but also had to have some kind of bounce to it so that it didn't... Um, like tear? Tear and end up with like, you know, black marks all the way around the outside and stuff like that. And didn't uh, they do something to the ink as well? Like Stephen Fry talks about this, but they did something to the ink so that it would, it wouldn't run. Yeah, so ink before, like if you use ink from a pen, it's like a liquid. It's almost mm -hmm. like any liquid, like water almost. That's how thin it is. But the ink that you use on a printing press is more like oil, like heavy, not, not oil like the oil you'd put in your car, uh, but not oil, but greased, like really, really thick. Um, and so that was the other thing was this development of ink that could be used for this particular type of process. And because you don't want the ink on all of this, the, the paper, you just want it on the top part where the letters are. So you have to be able to develop that. And then at the same time as all this, eyeglasses for people to be able to see better. <laughs> We're starting to be uh, um, kind of around there in the world. Uh, so there was that. And then another invention that we never even think about that made Gutenberg Bible, this is really related to what made the Bible be this thing that all of a sudden took off at that time and how he was able to do this is something called a codex. So do you, did you know that all books are codex? <laughs> okay, yeah. Essentially, a codex is what a book is. It's basically a bunch of papers all stacked on, each on top of each other and bound together so that you could flip it back and forth, like you would flip a book. So that's as opposed to a scroll. So originally, you might read an official document or something as a scroll. Yeah, big and long, but... <laughs> you need like the whole... <laughs> exactly. Like lay it out on the floor to read the whole thing. So the codex had been around for a long time for a long, like quite a long time since the Roman period, but the codex was more, was starting to become more popular and useful at this time. And that's really like, that's the way to print on a printing press. It's page by page. And then you take all those pages and you bind them together. You can't really print on a scroll as easily because you have to match it up properly as you go along. And then it takes longer. It's the, the so all of these things all came together in one time and place to create the right time for this invention to take off, essentially, and to be used in a specific way. So besides all of that, it was the topic that Gutenberg was trying to print, right? So he wants to print the Bible in English so that the mass population can read the word of God versus only church people being having access to the actual word of God. So, of course, there's the Reformation happening at the same time where there, this uh, ideological uh, change is happening in this part of the world. The technology exists to be able to take advantage of that ideology to, uh, to disseminate it across the world. And it all comes together in this place in Germany at the time. And then, of course, there's also this, which I didn't research, but I know already, is this whole proliferation of trade routes in that area, which made it, gave it the ability to be able to move that technology, once it's been created, to move those books to all kinds of places around in Europe at the time. So I, that was kind of like, I'm so interested in all of these, like, 
tiny things happening, and this happens in every invention, is like the right people meet the right people at the right time. This guy who has this particular skill meets up with this other guy who has just the right skill to, to complement it, and they can create this thing that everybody happens to need right at that time. Is, uh, uh, it always is of interest to me, and this invention of Gutenberg's is exactly that, that particular thing. Uh, so that's, I kind of went there and then, and then I thought, oh, I should actually look a little bit about Canadian history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so from there I went to, when did we first have printers in Canada? Uh, and printers have come, have been in Canada since Europeans have been in Canada, essentially. And uh, so since the mid 1700s, there have been printers in Canada, in the Maritimes and in Quebec. Uh, were the very first ones. 1751, there was a printer named John Bushell who was in Halifax and he printed the newspaper, the Halifax Gazette. So I didn't go into too much of that. I was almost at the end of my time. I spent far too much time reading about the confluence of all these inventions together that I I lost track of time. But I wanted to talk about Niagara just a little yes. tiny bit. Uh, and uh, the printing press in Niagara. So the printing press in Niagara, the oldest printing press we know is from uh, 1792, when a guy named Louis Roy uh, had a printing press in Niagara-on-the-Lake, which was called Newark at the time, and he printed uh, uh, the news for um, the local population. Uh, but he also printed, and this is very common for printers across Canada, I want to say up to the 20th century, throughout the 19th century as well, in that you couldn't make a living at printing, unless you had a government contract to print right. all of the government announcements and all of the government publications. So when Parliament met, the Hansard needed to be printed. They needed to have a printer on contract to be able to do that. Uh, so Louis Roy's was actually the government printer. He printed newspapers as well, but he was the government printer and he printed government extracts and government documents and uh, anything that needed to the government needed but also needed to get out into the public eye as well and there's a repro of the louis roy press at the mackenzie printery museum in uh in queenston and uh it looks very similar to the kind of presses they were using in gutenberg's day it didn't change a lot in that particular time there is some refinements and things like that but it didn't change that much and so i thought that was super interesting uh, and then printing in Canada, essentially printing and the press in Canada was really related to the government for years, for a couple of centuries, uh, the early part of the, the centuries. Really didn't change a lot until around the time of the First World War. So the press was incredibly partisan. So obviously, if the government yeah. is paying you, to, and that is your livelihood, it's in your best interest to print stories that relate to uh, what the government wants. So there's that. And then on top of that, uh, people who ran for parliament frequently realized, most of the time they realized they needed the press to help them out. Because that might be the only way people would get news or have find out about whether or not someone was legit as far as being a good parliamentarian. And so most of them were either newspaper people themselves or paid a newspaper to be their newspaper kind of right. like, a, like an official oh, endorsement yeah like they owned the newspaper mm. and they essentially bankrolled the paper like george uh, brown and the globe 
perfect example. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Laurier owned a newspaper. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Most politicians at the turn of the 20th century uh, were somehow involved in the newspaper business in some way or other. That is almost where I ended up. So uh, yeah, I basically ended up with the partisanship of the press. At the time of the Boer War, which people who know me a little know that that's something that I've kind of been interested in researching of late. And uh, at the time of the Boer War, Canada's involvement in the Boer War can be directly attributed to the fact that the press got involved in a partisan way and to push people in certain directions uh, to uh, have Canada get involved in this foreign war that they didn't feel was something they should be doing. Some people didn't feel it was something we should be doing at the time, but the press got kind of got the citizenship uh, fomented behind this idea and kind of got the citizenship all excited about it. And it forced the hand of government to have to, uh, uh, to change the direction that they were potentially going to go. We were going to take like a middle, middle of the road kind of line, not make any decisions in either direction. Anyway, the press was quite involved in that. And, and they, did that, they make, so did they make that argument with um, like using nationalism? Is that where that began? I remember I was talking about this in another time too, that like the, like the nationalism that we saw at the beginning of the first world war sort of started around the Boer war. And like, was that sort of like a, a practice session for the press in in terms of how to rouse, you know, attention to a national cause? For sure. And it's because the press was so partisan that that was what right. they were able to do. So essentially because certain political stripes had this idea that Canada meant this thing, or Canadians yes. meant this thing, which was, you know, um, it was a real imperialist, Canadian version of imperialism, essentially. So Canada as part of this larger empire uh, that we were, um, you know, a, a group of people that were stronger, healthier, uh, you know, had this, this knowledge of backwoods and horse riding and all this stuff that would make us better soldiers. Um, but on top of that, because we're, we were the, the premier country in the in empire, we were the largest and the biggest imperial satellite at the time, essentially. Um, there's certain stripes that used the press to kind of create this, uh, this discussion around shouldn't we come to the aid of the mother country in time of need? And so there was lots of discussion around that. The government was leaning towards, they believed in this idea, the government was Wilfrid Laurier at the time, believed in this idea of supporting Britain because we're still part of this empire. But at the same time, they didn't see that Canada should be involved in a war in Africa that was obviously not something that was going to impact Canada in any way, but it was related to British imperialism in the world. And that was where the debate kind of was, it kind of revolved around this idea of, do we just blindly support the mother country or do we support the mother country using, like thinking from a Canadian perspective? And that didn't happen until the First World War. So the last thing that I thought was really interesting that I came across this fact that it all tied it all together, nice. hopefully, was this idea that this machine that just pushed stuff down, the press, 
actually came to be known and came to be used to describe the business of disseminating information. Right. So the press itself is just a machine. But now when you talk about the press, we're talking about yes. the media and the, the information that gets disseminated into the public. And so this iconic invention now means so much more than just pushing stuff down to create an impression. The more kind of fifth estate version of the press came after the First World War, really, because prior to that, the press was very partisan. So it wasn't really its own uh, neutral uh, onlooker. And some people would argue, and this is like probably way off topic, but some people would argue that that hasn't changed at all. Right. Uh, you read the commentary in almost every media source. There are people arguing in both directions that this media source is far too partisan. This one, this other one is very partisan. Fake news. So, uh, the question is whether that has changed so much, changed, but the, the media is seen as having a very vital role in take, calling to account the establishment, essentially. But whether they're doing that in a partisan way or not, who knows? But that is a huge debate in media studies and history for the entirety of Canadian history, I think. <laughs> anyway, that's where I ended up with. That's awesome. That's what a cool conversation. That was fun. Yeah, that was great. Thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us. Special thanks to our dogs, my dog Jarvis and Kathy's dog Stella, for mostly behaving through that podcast recording. Make sure to subscribe to One Hour in the Past and the museum's other podcast, Museum Chat Live, on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, so you don't miss any of our historical adventures. We're always looking for ideas to spend one hour in the past researching. If you have a topic you'd like to see us tackle, connect with us at www.facebook.com forward slash St. Catherine's Museum or on Twitter and Instagram at at STC Museum. We're so looking forward to chatting with you all again on our next episode of One Hour in the Past. Tune in next time for our rabbit hole research of the Family Compact. One Hour in the Past is produced by us, Kathleen Powell and Adrian Petrie, and brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines.